it's like Reese's peanut butter cup. You know, when I was a kid, they had that commercial. Somebody's eating chocolate, somebody's eating peanut butter, they run into each other, and then they're like, wow, this is amazing. That's how we have to understand justice. It is intrinsic to our witness, especially in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, cynical society. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Experiencing Christ's love is just the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor at the 2019 CBF General Assembly, June 17 to 21 in Birmingham, Alabama. Join the Cooperative Baptist family as they worship, learn, and grow through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with booths, live podcasts, and music. For more information and to register, visit cbf.net slash assembly. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Mark DeMoz, pastor of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas in Little Rock, Arkansas. I had a chance to sit down with Mark in April during the annual convention of the Evangelical Press Association. He spoke there, and he's also written several books on topics ranging from multi-ethnic church, one coming out later this year on looking at financing and resourcing the church. And he's going to be talking about all of those issues and several other things in his church and ministry life. I think you'll hear him dealing with a lot of really important topics that churches need to be thinking about today. So here's my conversation with Mark DeMoz of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas. Well, first of all, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Mm, great to be with you, Brian. Thank you so much. We'll get to some of your current work in a moment, but you grew up, first of all, attending a Catholic church and then a conservative Baptist church in Arizona. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that religious diversity in your childhood and how that's impacted you. I was born out of wedlock, just my mother and I, raised Catholic, in fact, Jesuit educated, parochial schools, junior high, all through senior high and a Jesuit college prep school. It's not we had money. In fact, I was on a work scholarship and that's what helped pay. So for six years, I actually worked in the rectories along with the priest and, and serving them in a variety of ways to help pay for my own parochial education. And growing up in high school as a Jesuit, you know, at the time, the motto was men for others. It had been that way for centuries. And, and now, inclusive of women, of course, it's, it's people for others. Or there's a different way they say that, but it's inclusive of both men and women who view themselves as Jesuits. So that men for others phrase, I, I really feel like I'm still a closet Jesuit, if you will. I'm so shaped by that giving your life away in service to God and others that came from my Jesuit education. So and along with that, being an altar boy in the whole works, I had a tremendous head knowledge of, of God, of the Bible, of, of Christian faith, Trinitarian, I mean, you know, uh, all that. You know, someone once said the distance between heaven and hell is 12 inches, the distance from your head to your heart. And I had never really put it all together in my heart in my sophomore year, between my freshman and sophomore year as a college baseball player at Mesa Community College in Arizona, I began to meet a few, a couple Christians who were athletes and I had never met that in my life. Again, uh, Catholic athletes, and not that Catholics aren't Christians, but none uh, evangelical, let's say, are outspoken about their faith. And I met these guys on my team, and that uh, one thing led to another. I ended up uh, attending a conservative Baptist church in Scottsdale with my mother. It was convenient to where we lived at the time, and 
and, and so we started going and they had a college group. And so for the first time I ventured into a college Sunday school. And I, I remember at that time I wasn't obviously living for God. And I would invite these, these college students to come out and party with me on a Friday night and people I knew, and they'd very graciously say no. They were going roller skating instead. And I thought, roller skating? I mean, that's just like the dumbest thing I'd ever heard of. And but but on Sunday morning when I'd show up at church, you know, they they would have pictures on a bulletin board and they would be recalling great memories of Friday night. And it was all that I could do to forget what happened Friday night. Right. And so I began to notice something different in their life. And of course, attending that church and, and, you know, an altar call each week. At some point I was convicted. Everything made sense to me. And I was going to go forward to give my life to Christ. My mother, I grew up watching Rex Humbard every Sunday morning. She'd put Rex Humbard on the TV, even though we went to a Catholic church while we were getting ready. And so at the end of those Rex Humbard services, there would always be the song, Just As I Am. And that would almost like the cue for people to come forward. So when I was convicted, sitting in this conservative Baptist church, I'm ready to go forward. I'm going to give my life to God. And I just waited from week after week after week, waiting for them to play the song, Just As I Am, at the altar call. And they never played it. And finally, I was so, you know, I, I don't care what song it is, I'm going forward. I gave my life to Christ. So that happened just before my sophomore year in, in college. And, and when I became a believer, a more evangelical, if you will, and made that heart connection with Christ in a personal way, well, I, I think I, in a sense, jumped to the head of the class, if you will, with some of the other Christian young people around me, because I had such a tremendous understanding from parochial education, altar boy the works. But I, and then when I got that key, like a car, so I had the entire car, I just didn't have the key. And so my faith took off my, my journey with Christ. And four months later, I ended up in a full ride baseball scholarship at Liberty University, 1981 to 83, where I was discipled, not in that environment, but really by listening to Keith Green music. And so I feel like Keith Green discipled me from a distance in the environment at Liberty and too slow to get drafted three years later. That church, that conservative Baptist church invited me and said, hey, we've got this high school group of about 70 kids and we need a leader for him. I didn't know what that involved, but I became a youth pastor. And I was, as it turned out, I was gifted at it. I enjoyed it. The kids locked into me. And about a year and a half later, the pastor said, Hey, do you like doing this? I go, yeah, it's great. You know, I'm really having fun. And, and he goes, yeah, you seem to be really natural at this. And the kids seem to respond to you. I go, yeah, they seem to. And he says, well, do you want to keep doing this? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. It sounds, it's great. You know, and and he says, well, if you want to keep doing this, you probably can't keep giving your testimony every week, you know, because that's essentially all the Bible I knew. I mean, I, I was a psych major and a baseball player in college. So I said, well, what do you do? He said, you go to seminary. So I immediately thought Gregorian chants, robes. He says, no, no, it's not like that. Right. And he said, you know, you can go to Dallas. This was 1984, 85. But there you wear gray slacks and a blue coat and a tie. Or you can go to Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon and wear jeans. So that's where I went. And uh, right away, got a job as a youth pastor. And, and, you know, 17, 18 years later, I had finished a youth ministry career. And then in 2001, launched what is a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse church in the urban center of Little Rock. And so anyway, I look back on those roots. They are Baptist. My, my understanding of faith that conservative Baptist, Scottsdale Baptist, it's, no, it, it's still there, but under a different name. And now, ironically, it's a multi-ethnic church. That's a fascinating story. And I want to now talk about what you've been doing in Arkansas. So nearly two decades ago started Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas. And as you've already noted, I know there's two things I really want to ask you about this congregation. You've already noted the multi-ethnic, and that was very much intentional in the launch, the whole framing and purpose. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because you, when you shared in your talk last night, and you've written a couple of books, 
on this this topic, the, the importance of the multi-ethnic congregation. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I had been a youth pastor for about 17, almost 18 years. The final eight of those at a mega church in Little Rock, really a wonderful church, a suburban church, predominantly and virtually all white. And, and I was just fine with that. I never gave it any thought. This into the, you know, 93 to 01. But in the late 90s, it began to bother me. Of course, I'm living in Little Rock now, not Arizona. It's the American South. And, and as we all know, racism, which is a spiritual problem, exists everywhere. But in the South, you feel it in a certain way. And, and, and so living in the South four or five years, I began to be in, get in touch with systemic divides in society and, and with some of the tensions that are obviously very historic, centuries old in this country and particularly in the American South. And I began to look at my church a little differently. I'm in a town at the time, I'm going to guess about 42% African-American. Our church was 5,000 white, Republican, suburban, you know, lovers of God. But, but the only people of color in our church were janitors. And that began to bother me, but I, I didn't know why it bothered me at the time. But there just something wasn't right about that. And having a master's in exegesis at the time, now I have a doctorate, but I began to study the New Testament more for myself versus what I'd been taught in terms of the nature of the church. For instance, I'd been taught that the New Testament church was essentially there were churches filled with Jewish believers and then there were churches that were filled with Gentile believers, so almost a segregation of, of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the New Testament. I'd been taught erroneously, now I understand, about the homogeneous unit principle, which Don McGavern mined and, and later expounded on by Peter Wagner in 1972 at Fuller. But I had been taught the way to plant, grow, and develop churches to target a people group and essentially give them everything they want. And that's how you grow a church and as if it was biblical and but when I looked into the New Testament for myself, I found that the only homogeneous church in the entire New Testament was Jerusalem. I argue it was. Some people would say it's not, but I believe it was predominantly made up of Jewish believers. But every other church outside of that, beginning at Antioch, is what is called a multi-ethnic church. Paul evangelized the Jews, Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, all walking, working, worshiping God together as one in one local church in the city or in a local church. And so I began to see that the New Testament, the nature of the New Testament church was, in fact, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, and that this established the credibility of the very message that the church was proclaiming. God's love for all people was established in the credibility of diverse men and women walking, working, worshiping God together as one in local churches. And, and of course, then re-examined the homogeneous unit principle and discovered from McGavern's own writings that it's primarily an evangelistic and discipleship principle never meant to be applied to the local church in terms of planting, growing, or developing a church. That was Wagner's iteration, and it was an erroneous one. And, and in fact, uh, Martin Marty in 1978 challenged McGavern and asked a question in a national publication, is the homogeneous unit principle a biblical? And McGavern said, not only should Marty think of it as an evangelist discipleship principle, not necessarily for the church, but he said, and this is a direct quote from McGavern in 1978, he said, people misapplying the homogeneous unit principle again, in, in the context of plant, grow, or develop specifically or single homogeneous churches, that those churches could become exclusive, arrogant, and racist. And he said, and that danger must be resolutely combated. Fact is, over 50 years, we have not resolutely combated that in the church, and that's led to the proliferation of very large but systemically segregated churches that today, in an increasingly diverse society, is undermining, albeit unintentionally, but it's undermining the credibility of our presentation when we preach a message of God's love for all people from otherwise systemically segregated pulpits and pews.
Yeah, you you brought attention to the quotation that predated him, but that Martin Luther King Jr. helped popularize that the most segregated hour in the United States is the 11 o'clock worship hour on Sunday mornings. And in, in many ways, it's probably even more true today than it was when King talked about it, because the our schools, our restaurants, right, the other parts of society have desegregated some. The rest of our society is improving since King's Day, and our churches generally haven't. Uh, and there was a quote that I wrote down from your talk last night that you, you kind of just started to hit at. You said, due to the systemic racism. The church has virtually no credibility when it comes to discussing matters of race, class, and culture in a diverse community. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because you're getting the heart of our of our witness and our credibility in our communities that we're losing because of our segregated churches. Yeah, absolutely. The the systemic segregation of the church is what we're talking about. Whites going to white church, black, Korean, Hispanic, you know, Mexican, what have you, urban, suburban. The entire systemic segregation, as, as you're alluding to, undermines our credibility. So we preach a message of God's love for all people. But in fact, when the world looks in, what they see is all is a bunch of white people worshiping God or a bunch of black people worshiping God or Asian. And how that translates in our society, and nobody says this or feels it or even co- cognitively may be aware of it, but what's happening is that people are seeing that each that we all have our own gods. The whites have a God. The blacks have a God. The Asians have a God. And this is how it's translating. And it's no different, really, than two or 3,000 years ago when the Hittites had their gods, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians. And this is how it's being interpreted in our society, I feel. And, you, you know, we can talk about the nuns and, and, and all, uh, all the different reasons why young people are not interested in the church. But I contend the primary reason is because what seems to be hypocrisy, that again, we preach a message of God's love for all people from otherwise systemically segregated pulpits and pews. So the message isn't un- it, the message is unbelievable, if you will. And, and some would say, uh, as they do, well, just preach Jesus, just preach the gospel. And, 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 and that's all it takes. And the, the thing is, is number one, we have been preaching the gospel. We have been lifting up Jesus, and yet our churches are systemically segregated. So it's not the gospel's problem. At some point, you have to recognize it's not the gospel's problem. It's our understanding of the gospel. And and that goes into an entire line of, uh, of thinking in terms of exegesis, where what predominantly I found, again, coming out of the white church, so that's my tribe, if you will. I can, you know, I, I get to critique my own, if you will. But... We're very good with Romans 1.16a. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Power of salvation, right? But then 116b is to everyone who believes. Not only Jews, but Gentiles too. Let me tell you that what that would sound like today is not just for white people, but for black people, for not just for rich people, but poor, not just for men and women. And, and, and we leave that part out. And that is essentially the thesis of the entire book of Romans, which we have made in a more sanitized way we think Paul wrote the entire book of Romans to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation by faith, you know, not by works, atonement through the blood of, of Christ. And of course, we believe, I believe that, we all understand. And I call that, though, the capital G gospel. Because in fact, Romans 16, 25, y'all listening can look it up. Paul, at the end of this book, he says, Now may God establish you, meaning the church at Rome, which was multi-ethnic, men and women, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. May God establish you according to my gospel and the proclamation, the Greek word is kerygma, of Jesus Christ. Now, at some point you say, what the heck is this my gospel stuff? 
Well, he goes on to explain. He says, that is the one that was given to me according to the mystery of Christ. It's the same language of Colossians 1. It's the same language of Ephesians 3. He's talking about a different good news. Now, stay with me. Gospel, the word, just means good news. That's all it means. If you were drowning in a river, Brian, and I reached in and pulled you out, that's gospel to you. Good news. We're the ones who sanitize it. It only means salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this is the foundation of our faith and everything Paul did. But rooted and built on that, what I call the capital G gospel, is this little G gospel that is equally important, but in terms of the ramifications, that this capital G gospel is not just for the Jews in terms of salvation. The local church is not just for the Jews and the coming eternal kingdom of God is not just for the Jews. We could say it today for the white people, right? It's for blacks, Hispanics, rich, poor. And this is the gospel of Paul. And that's what the entire book of Romans is about. I wish I had time to exegete it. But we we only understand half of that. See, because he's really writing to explain his gospel, this gospel of what I call Gentile inclusion, Ephesians chapter 3, 6. Again, that Gentiles, not just Jews, are included in salvation, the capital G gospel, the local church and the kingdom of God. And again, this is when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he's talking about. Revelation 7, 9 says every nation, tribe, people and tongue are in the same room, same body, same bride. I would say walking, working, worshiping God for all eternity. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, it's long past time for us to address the question, why on earth is the local church? I love that idea of thinking about the you know, two, three thousand years ago, each tribe having their own God. It's a, it's a great metaphor, critique. And I was thinking as you were talking about that King's Birmingham letter where he talks about driving by the white churches and wondering what God are they singing to and who are they praising because he wasn't finding them coming out and speaking, you know, joining the movement. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the problem that we have in churches about compartmentalizing Jesus and justice. And this is kind of what you're just getting to. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that idea of, of why we need both together in this gospel. Yeah. I was literally talking to someone here at the convention about that very thing. And and as your audience probably is aware and probably some even listening, again, coming out of the white evangelical world, of which I am still a part uh, in many ways, we hear the word justice and panic. We hear the word justice and freak out. We hear the word justice and instantly hold up our fingers like a cross, like get behind me, Satan, right? Because of our fear of, of the social gospel, if you want to call it that. You know, so I I mean, I get that part, but that's really not what's going on. And we're past that in in a sense. And, And here's what I mean. Justice is intrinsic to the gospel, not peripheral to it. And the longer we try to bifurcate those things or compartmentalize, it's in it's again, this too is undermining our credibility because it's like that old phrase. I think I heard as a kid somewhere, you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Or another one where, you know, you can. You can tell them about Jesus all day long, but if they're hungry, how can they listen? How can they hear? Because they're not thinking about Jesus. All they're thinking about, I'm starving. I'm hungry, right? So these are the kinds of things that just kind of in a colloquial way that kind of frame this idea that we can't just be about words and theology. We must be also about works and sociology. And they're, they're intertwined because our witness is wrapped up in our good works. We're not saved by our works. But our witness is wrapped up in good works. So even our Savior said, Matthew 5, 16, he didn't say, let them hear your good words. 
He said, let them see your good works. And this is what will bring glory to God. They will, and what I, the word glory is essentially just shine a light. So think about a darkened world. To glorify God is to shine a light into the darkness so that those who can't see God can see him like a flashlight in a darkened room. This is a very simple way of explaining what does it mean to glorify God? Well, Jesus says our works, our good works is what helps shine a light on who God is so that those in darkness can see, not our words. So our words are important, uh, right? Obviously, our theology is important, yes, but it's best displayed in our good works. And so again, it's like Reese's peanut butter cup. You know, when I was a kid, they had that commercial. Somebody's eating chocolate, somebody's eating peanut butter, they run into each other, and then they're like, wow, this is amazing. That's how we have to understand justice. It is intrinsic to our witness, especially in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, cynical society. So, for instance, the 20th century, you know, and even 19th, and of course, going back to 2000 years, but foreign missions, right? So in in predominantly white churches, man, we're all about the mission field and sending missionaries and money. And that's great. But the but the community local community of African-Americans or Hispanics or the poor, they rightly wonder, they, they see our churches doing this and they'll say rightly, this church sends its people and its resources across the ocean, but I've never seen them across the street. And this again gets into this idea of what is just. The prophet said, but to do justice. I mean, you know, and, and, and that's what he said. And do love mercy, walk humbly. This is what our communities have to see because the age of Billy Graham is over. The great evangelist and great man, and there's nothing bad to say about him. But in a sense, that was 20th century evangelism. The 21st century evangelism is all wrapped up in justice and economics, economics, for-profit economics, bringing job, helping to create jobs and, and, and generate tax revenue and repurpose abandoned property. The economic uplift tied to good works of justice is what gives us entree to explain and express that gospel we love. But if you lead in a sense with the gospel and words, apart from works, you know, and, and I think I think there's a guy named James that wrote something about this, right? <laughs> so I don't understand it. It's maddening. I know it's maddening for my brothers and sisters of, of color. I just don't get what the issue is with our white brethren who, for so many of them, want to continue to compartmentalize this concept of advancing the justice of God in the local communities. It's not displacing that gospel of Jesus Christ. We love the capital G gospel. But no, it's it's like the men of Issachar, understanding the times and knowing what is right to do in our time in order to accomplish the will of God and advance the gospel. And, and so this is all the idea that justice and Jesus are like Reese's peanut butter cup. And the sooner we get to that place in our understanding, the sooner we can advance good works and actually engage in, in effective evangelism in the 21st century. Well, you talked about this idea of crossing the street. And one of the things that, as I was reading about you and your church, one of the things that I thought really jumped out was how deliberate talking, not just when you started, but even today about the zip code, the 72204 zip code, and still today about seeing yourself grounded in this. So for those of us who are familiar with Little Rock, yeah. what is this zip code? The 72204 in, in Little Rock is one of a couple zip codes that high violent crime, high instance of poverty. Last I checked, 30% poverty in our community, out or below poverty. It's an area of town that at one time was very glorious, 
and then went into significant disrepair. But over the last 10 to 15 years, and our church has been right at the forefront of this, bringing this community back spiritually, socially, economically, emotionally, and partnering with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, which is also grounded in that community. So I think high violent crime, instances of poverty, at-risk children, 66% or so without dads in the home. And we moved into that community, and, and that's where we planted now almost 18 years ago. And so throughout time, we'll go through the entire story of how we got to this point. But in some sense, it's like the old parish model, right? Where you think about this is my parish. And I, I had, you know, again, being a pastor for 35 years now, I don't know that I ever said it. Maybe I did. But but I would heard pastors say many times, we're going to take this city for Christ. We're going to, you know, change this city for Christ. And in fact, when I speak on this to pastors, I'll say, how many of you have ever heard that or from a pastor or said it yourself? And virtually every hand in the room goes up. I follow it up with a question. I say, now, how many of you have ever seen it happen? And you know what? The consistent thing for 15 years is a little laugh. Like everybody will slightly chuckle because they've never seen it happen. And the problem I began to realize years ago is no church is going to take, quote, its city for Christ. The only people, person going to take a city for Christ is Christ himself someday. And if we could get our, ourselves together and work together, sure, maybe that could happen. But, you know, that's very difficult. But I realized that a local church, just like a human being, has only so much capacity. And if you try to, quote, take a city for Christ, what that looks like is you might be sending a little bit of money over over here for this work or a little bit of money over there. Your people go over here. But it's almost like a shotgun effect. And there's no synergy in that. And, and so we began to realize what is our capacity? We actually started in a trailer park. We bought a trailer in a rundown trailer park, 50 trailers in that park. And we cut our teeth on community engagement in this underserved, very poor, black, white, and Hispanic trailer park in, outside of Little Rock. And then we extrapolated the principles. You learned and said, how, what could we effectively get our hands around? Well, 7224 is 32,000 people. And by the time our church had grown, not only in terms of size, but in our understanding of how to engage the community along the lines, not only spiritual, but, so, uh, but justice and economics, we felt like we could wrap our hands around that. Now, I tell churches, it may not be a zip code for you. It may be a five block radius. It may be an apartment complex or like a trailer park that we did. But the idea is churches need to focus their, their community engagement, their justice and economics into a specific defined territory. I'd be able to ask you, who do you focus on? Because then all of our resources in terms of local community engagement, they're not spread so thin that they do a little good. They're focused and, and put primarily into one single area of town. Again, it could be an apartment complex. We use a zip code because we, we have that capacity. And so then who are we feeding? People of 72204, whose kids are at risk and in our chess program, their kids from 72204, you know, and on and on it could go because the programs primarily, not exclusively, but primarily are focused on that zip code. And that gets synergy because when you're feeding the parents, and they're getting, you know, groceries and we serve 55% of the entire zip code depends on us for three to four days of groceries a month, milk, meat, vegetables, the fruit, the, the, you name it. Their kids are also in our, our at-risk programs. And, and so everybody knows. So the program directors know the families and, and it, it creates community and relationship. And, and all of it then is, is you get exponential uplift for your dollar, for your investment of time and resources. And so I think this is really part of the church again in America not having such grandiose verbiage or or ideas that that end up at the end of the day not not willfully but it ends up being rhetoric where there's no results but if you focus and you say what is our territory what is our parish 
What could we wrap our hands around in terms of the capacity of our church? And, you know, for some mega churches, it might be bigger. It probably won't be the city, but focus. That's the idea. Don't think shotgun in terms of your community engagement work. Think laser into what community and dump your resources, money, people, everything in that community. And you'll see uplift. And this, again, will be recognized by those that don't know Jesus and Christ will be lifted up. Glory, Matthew 5, 16 again, right? And, and then, so that's what the idea of the zip code is. But again, I don't recommend zip codes. I just recommend targeted areas, depending on your capacity, what you think you can get your hands around and focus your efforts there in terms of local, just like people do in the foreign mission field, right? Now they may have different works around, but many times churches choose one thing and invest a ton of money. Their trips are all there, uh, right? Because they've recognized this principle. It's just applying that at a local level. I have one last question for you. you. You, as we've noted, you authored several books, a couple on multi-ethnic congregations and work, your most recent one, Disruption. But I wanted to actually get you to plug your upcoming one. I think it's coming out in October. It's probably already available for pre-order on Amazon, I'm sure. And I, I'm excited about it. It sounds very interesting. I'd like to, if you give us a little brief kind of plug of what's coming up, because you're trying to get us to think ahead of the curve here, or maybe we're already a little behind, but what's next? And the title of it is The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough, and What You Can Do About It. So what's the, the, the bad news and then the good news here? Yeah, well, the bad news, as virtually any pastor listening to this knows, is uh, attendance is in decline. Just our general credibilities we've already discussed, and with that comes a loss of income. Church budgets have shrunk on average from like $150,000 a year to one twenty-five. I think, in the last 10 years. And they'll probably stable off, but they're, you know, again, it's, you know, we know this. The rise of dual-income households, burden on the middle class, differences in generational giving. And, and attitudes towards giving. For instance, about 75% of the wealth in the American church is held by people 65 and older. When that money trickles down over the next 15 years, it's going to go to Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z. Millennials and Gen Z particularly do not see money the way older folks do. I'm 57. I can say it again coming out. Uh, but, uh, you know, baby boomers and, and people older, they think that money is the primary way you can make things happen, change the world, etc. But millennials, Gen Z, they don't think like that. This is research. I'm not just making it up. They believe the the way you change the world is through volunteerism and essentially product endorsement, spreading the word of ideas and and things. Hey, have you heard of Tom's shoes? Man, you got to get a pair, right? Because every pair they give that, that's how they believe you change the world. So so that too is going to mean that that money is going to go away. We're not even talking about, or or it it will not be given to the church the way it has been given. And, and not even talking about possibilities, if not probabilities, of government, of change in government regulations. So, for instance, in the state of Pennsylvania, churches are taxed on everything but their sanctuary. So think about a church like most of us would know, Saddleback. What happens if Orange County decides it's going to begin to tax Saddleback Church annually? What would be the property tax on that? I have no idea. Let's just say it's a million dollars. Just throw out a number. It's a million dollars every single year. Saddleback would have to come up out of people putting money in an offering plate. They're going to have to take one million dollars given as unto the Lord to further his kingdom and give it to county government in Orange County. If that happens at a a broader scale, what if we have a president who, for some reason, has a bad opinion, bad thought, bad experience with the church, signs an executive order and says, beginning in 2021, churches are no longer tax exempt. You know, Australia, they're they're not tax exempt. And and there's other countries. Right. So we've lived on this privilege and benefit for a long time. It can be easily taken away. 
We are not at all prepared for that economic disruption. And so that's the bad news, if you will. Now, the good news is that with good understanding of sociology, our, our times we live in, men of Issachar kind of stuff, and theology that is understood differently than it's been previously taught, we should recognize that the collective local church should become an economic entrepreneurial engine that is essentially leveraging its assets to bless the community, community engagement, advance the gospel, the common good, the things we've already talked about, but do it in a sustainable way, in a way that generates for-profit ROI back to the church in order to supplement tithes and offerings. And, and this is what we've had to do. Churches in the inner city know, churches on the mission field know, you have to be entrepreneurial. You have to generate income. And, and this creates jobs, lowers crimes, repurposes abandoned property. So there's all this benefit that catches the world's attention, right? We've talked about that already in ways that just simply preaching the gospel doesn't. But at the same time, we work smart to generate income. So for instance, in our church, $1.2 million budget, about maybe 600, 550, 600 people on a Sunday morning, only 70% is funded by tithes and offerings. The other 30% is funded by entrepreneur business enterprise, what is called UBI. We pay tax, right? We should pay the taxes. The people that don't believe in Jesus, they look at us and they don't like that we don't pay tax. When you pay taxes, you contribute. So this is just part of cost of doing business. We should think like that. But the whole point of the book, it can be you know 60,000 words summed up in a question for pastors. How do you leverage church assets, which are people, money, and buildings, to bless the community, that is to engage the community, advance the gospel, common good, brings reduction in crime, job creation, etc. But do it in a way in which you also get a return on that investment, a for-profit return. One, I mean, I give you examples, a quick one, just for sake of time, but we bought a 100,000 square foot Kmart five years ago. A year later, I rented half the building to a suburban fitness club, drew them into the urban community, only charged them $2 a square foot on the property. That's just 8,000 a month. That's very low for what they would otherwise have to pay for 50,000 square feet, but it pays my $7,400 mortgage. It created 20 jobs, 19% reduction in crime, 6,000 people in a community of 30% poverty joined because the economics mean that the owner can charge just $10 a month, no contract to join a, an otherwise suburban health club. This is something that's a win for everybody. It's a win for the church because I'm getting something. I'm not charging and getting top dollar, but I'm, I can't just keep giving something away. You keep giving it away. You're not going to be here in 10 years. So I'm getting something. I'm getting 8,000 against my 7,400 mortgage. Small business wins because they've got a great space at a cheap and affordable price. And the community wins because they can come for $10, no contract. We have to think like this. And as you probably know, Brian, pastors, we were not taught. We are not taught. There, there's not one hour in most seminaries spent on this for pastors, this idea of what does it take to understand just basic economics. And the fact is we can be moaning all we want, but we have to lean into the fact the church is a business. It is a business. You can't run from that. There is a business aspect of it. And rather than try to suggest it's not a business, you should lean into and recognize it. just like good businesses, we can be a major force for good in our community if we leverage our assets and think smart about these things in terms of economics. So this book is the first one published by a major publisher ever written on this topic, which we're framing as church economics. And this is all about leveraging assets, generating for-profit sustainable income, but in a way that's benevolent to the community and blesses it. Again, all in line with Matthew 5.16. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all your work and, and for sharing. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be with you. And, and thanks for having me. And if folks want to look us up, I'm sure you can tell them how, but we're glad to help coach and, and, and lead out on all that. And, and uh, in fact, the place that we'll be talking a lot about this is our fourth national multi-ethnic church conference, November 5th through 7th in Dallas, Texas. The website's mosaix2019.com, www.mosaix2019.com. But anybody thinking about these things, the multi-ethnic, the, the justice and, and the economics, this is an epicenter. We only do it every three years. So your listener, I encourage them to join us November 5th through 7th, 2019 in Dallas. All right. Excellent. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Mosaic Church at mosaicchurch.net. And you can learn more about Mark DeMoz and his books at markdemoz.com. That's Mark, D-E-Y-M-A-Z.com. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you have comments or feedback, you can send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. You can go to wordandway.org and hit the donate button and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast as well as our website and our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening.